Can we have the first slide up there? So if you want to go to Acts 1-3, let's just take a look at that. Acts 1-3, after his suffering, Jesus showed himself to these men, to these brothers and sisters, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After that, he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. This passage is the reason we have spent much of the last year in the book of Acts. You're probably thinking, when are we going to get through this? But the book of Acts is a, um, a guidebook, an operating procedure for what we at third want to do and be. In this passage, you'll notice if we can go to the next slide, three words and three things jump out. Promise. The gift of the Holy Spirit is promised. We want to be about that. Power, evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit is the power that we as believers receive. And finally, purpose. The whole reason is to be witnesses. And in this passage, I think we can go one more. In this passage, the word witnesses is the word martyr. And you think, well, I don't know if I want to die for this. The word martyr here means to give your life, to give up your life. And the goal here at third is that we are Jesus' witnesses, that we provide the evidence, that we give the testimony that draws the lost into the fold and that brings healing and wholeness to people's lives. And so I found it just really compelling that this is what we've been focused on for most of a year. And now in Acts 24, we're actually going to speak about a trial which includes all of these concepts and these ideas. I think that's pretty cool stuff. So let's go to Acts 24. I'm going to jump through, so I'm not going to just read the whole chapter. You'll have to kind of figure out what I'm doing as we go. Verse 1, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down from Jerusalem to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Jump to verse 5. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Then I'll jump to 12, and this is when Paul begins his defense before Felix. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. 
and they have no evidence. They cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit, so here's testimony. I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So Paul is serving as his own witness and giving a testimony, providing evidence. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. That group chased him all over from city to city to city, stirring up riots and trouble. Or these who are here should state what crime they found me in. In other words, what testimony, what evidence do they actually have? When I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. Jump a couple to 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and spoke with him. This went on for two years. What's really on trial here, as Paul said, is the gospel. It's really not Paul. It's the Jewish leaders wanting to deny the truth of the gospel and looking for a way to do that through political and legal means because they had no way to argue on the basis of truth. A trial is about finding the truth. I know in our, in our day today, it's often political or it's about prosecutors just getting convictions. But in reality, at least in theory, trials are about finding truth. And so that's where Paul was trying to lead Felix and Drusilla. So he's on trial. What's he on trial for? He's on trial for stirring up mobs. In this context, that's kind of hilarious because the Jewish leaders did this everywhere he went and chased him around, stirring up mobs and creating riots. And it goes back into the Gospels. That's exactly how they fought Jesus. Um, in, John 7, in John 7, in John 18 and 19, and then here over several chapters, Acts 17, Acts 19 and 20, just over and over and over again, People, the Jewish leaders are creating riots and stirring up trouble. And now here they flip and they accuse Paul of doing that, which is not only ironic, but it's really the way we as humans work, isn't it? He was also um, accused of being a leader in the Nazarene sect. Well, this is true. 
And there's tons of evidence for this. If you look at his ministry throughout the book of Acts, it would be really easy to convict him on this. But I don't know that that was illegal. So the governor really had no recourse when it came to that. And finally, they accused him of desecrating the temple, which actually was just the opposite. He had gone through ceremonial cleaning and taken the Nazarite vow before he went to the temple with some other men. So what's really going on here? What is this trial really about? As I said, the the resurrection of Jesus is on trial. The resurrection of Jesus is always on trial. The gospel is always on trial. But there's even more that's going on. Paul knows from what you remember from what Tom taught a few weeks ago, Paul knows that he has to end up in in Rome. He needs to share the gospel with the leaders of the Roman Empire. And he knows, though nobody else seems to be aware of it, that this trial is just a step in that process. And so there is a much, much bigger plan at work here that is not confined to this room in Herod's palace. Another thing that's happening is we have learned throughout the book of Acts that there's spiritual warfare that this is just another way that darkness is trying to to put out the light and to silence truth. And so that's happening here as well. But another thing that's really interesting is that Felix and Drusilla clearly don't realize it, but they're on trial. When we go to verse 25, it says, As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was frightened and said, That's enough for now. With an exclamation point. It's an emotional response to the fact that he and Drusilla were being convicted in their hearts and hearing truths that they didn't want to recognize. They were convicted, but rather than embracing forgiveness, Rather than embracing the truth of the gospel, they clung more tightly to their lives of excess and power. How many of us in this world do that? We put the gospel on trial. We see how it works in our lives. We argue that it's not rational. It does not conform to the criteria by which I define truth. But bottom line, does it constrain the way I want to live? And so for many people on earth, that's a gigantic struggle. The other thing that's going on that I see and that I really appreciate about this is how it just refers to life in general. And the fact that as a believer, we are going to face trials. Jesus was put on trial. Paul was put on trial. The disciples were put on trial. We will be put on trial. And one of those is when people look at our lives to test and see, are you a believer? Your life as a believer is being put on trial by those around us. So what evidence exists in your life that says to people, I'm a believer in Jesus and the gospel is true? 
Because once again, we are called to be witnesses. It's our testimony that provides the evidence to people to convince them that the gospel is reality. In John 15, you know, Jesus taught about the vine and the branches. And that if we are in the vine, our lives will bear much fruit. What kind of fruit is my life, is your life producing today? In John 13, Jesus says, by this, you will know that you, the world will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. Is there evidence, enough evidence in your life of the love of Jesus Christ to convince people that don't know Jesus that this is real and that this is true? 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, you guys all know that. We taught about it here a couple years ago. What does your life say about 1 Corinthians 13? You know, and many times we can think this is, well, what do you want me to do? What am I supposed to do to prove these things to people? And it's not necessarily that you have to be versed in tons of philosophy and have to be able to be an apologist for the gospel. But it's little things. There's a story that I know of. Two guys, I'll call them Jim and Bob. <laughs> and Bob was in a local restaurant recently. And he saw Jim, who was having supper, but he wasn't with his family, with his wife and kids. He was with some other people. So, and they've known each other a long time. So Bob walked over to Jim, just said hi, sat down with him. But because the Holy Spirit gave him a nudge, he asked Jim, how are you doing? Jim said, I'm not doing well at all. So Bob said, can we get together? Do you want to talk about it? Jim said, yeah, I would really like that. So a couple weeks later, they met. They spent an evening uptown somewhere drinking coffee. They prayed together. Because of that breakthrough, then Jim decided to sign up for regular prayer here through the place of, place of prayer. And Bob got hooked up with that and another fellow and went to pray with him. And Jim shared that that night, while they were drinking coffee, that incredible breakthroughs happened in his life. And that his anger dissolved, that his feelings changed toward his family, toward his wife. They're in counseling they're praying together. Gigantic things are happening in this life, in his life. And it's just because Bob sat down next to somebody he knew in a booth in a restaurant. It's a simple story. It's a simple step. It's not earth shattering, but it's life changing. Those are the things that people see that say, this must be the real deal. The gospel is real. And Jesus is really resurrected. Slide four. This is a quote from Francois Fenelon, who was a, a Catholic archbishop, was born in 1651, wrote the book, The Seeking Heart. To just read, you like my typo? To just read their Bible, attend church, and avoid the big sins is this passionate 
wholehearted love for God. I mean, this is the stuff I do. I'm here every Sunday. I double dip. I go to two services. So, whoa, you know, right? I give money. I don't swear very often. My anger gets a hold of me once in a while, but I can usually hide it unless I'm with Vicky. And so from the outside, you could look at that life and say, yeah, wow, great. But is that passionate, wholehearted love for God? No, sorry, it's not. When we're called to be martyrs, we're called to give up our lives. I've just been hammered with this. I shared this, mate, whatever, when I was here. There's a book called Crazy Love. And it's by Francis Chan. If you do not want to be challenged, don't read that book. If you want to be challenged, read that book. It will punch you in the face again and again and again and challenge you to make steps and do things that show the world that your life is less important than the love of God and the glory of God. His analogy is that we are to be people that are walking up the down escalator. The other Vicky liked that one, so. But it's true. How are we different? How do our lives reflect Jesus? Another trial is when there's a, an accuser. Satan wants to accuse you. Satan wants to prosecute you. He wants to use your failures and your sin to drive a wedge between God and you. He wants you to give up and believe that you are defined by your sin rather than by salvation. And he is a liar. In Revelation 4, in Revelation 12, 10, we read the accusers of our sisters and brothers who accuses them day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. There we go again. That testimony thing. Are you his witness? Are you willing to give up your life? Are you a testimony for the truth of the gospel? They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Those are hard words. What evidence can Satan present that disproves God's presence in your life? But remember, he is a liar. Do you place yourself on trial? Do you place your heart on trial? I have these handouts here, and I want you to look at those in a minute. The word heart is in the Bible 750 times, 500, more than 500 times. It's a Hebrew word, lev, L-E-V, which means midst, the very center, the fullness, the wholeness of a human being. And it's used over 500 times in the Bible. So what I want to challenge you folks to do, I'm going to give you a few minutes to read through this list, to do a personal inventory and see if any of these verses speak to you about the condition of your heart. 
I meet with this guy, this tall guy that speaks over there every so often. And the first question out of his mouth is always, how is your heart? Because we're not defined by this, we're defined by our heart. Because we, we do sin, we will sin. But it's our heart that convicts us and lets us know, are we walking with Jesus or not? So I'm going to give you a few minutes, go through those, and then if you want to, feel free to talk to your neighbors, or share with the person near you or next to you a little bit. Is anyone brave enough who would like to share anything? The Lord lay anything on you? All right. So the last trial I want to speak about is the trial, Judgment Day. And if I can have slide five. Second Corinthians tells us that for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And I'm not sharing this to scare anyone or to judge anyone. I'm sharing this because I want to ask, is this where you're stuck? Do you feel like you're stuck in a place where you're judged? Do you feel like your life is defined by mistakes you've made or bad decisions or generational sin or habitual sin that you're struggling with? even though this day is coming and we all face it, we're all guilty. But I'm going to challenge you to not remain stuck in that place if that's where you live. Slide six. Romans 8, 1 and 2 tell us, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Just as Bristol taught last week when she taught about the law, and the law convicts us of our sin, but it can hold us in a legalistic mindset and make us, put us in bondage and keep us from knowing and experiencing the fullness of God's love. Slide seven. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. That is the assurance that is the evidence. The word, the work of the Holy Spirit, the lives of our sisters and brothers, of those we walk with, are evidence that this is true. And finally, Galatians 5.1. It's the last slide. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. 
You know, as, a, as I was studying and looking through this, one of the things I found really interesting is that as we've read the book of Acts, there is chapter after chapter, verse after verse, event after event, person after person that is historically and archaeologically verifiable. We know who Felix was. We know he was married. He divorced his wife. He convinced Drusilla to leave her Jewish husband and marry him when she was 16, which was anathema in Jewish culture. We know that happened. We know that he lost his seat as a governor and was almost executed. We know Drusilla died in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. We know the cities of Asia where Paul went. We can go and see the foundations of the churches that were established. And so event after event, in fact, we have a list of all of the high priests who served in the temple in Jerusalem. We know that. Down cold. It's on paper. And yet, the world says, I need evidence. So what is falling short? And if I look at my life, I think that often it's this, that I'm not living these verses, that my life is not evidence enough to convince people that Jesus is resurrected and the gospel is true. So I want to encourage you, sisters and brothers, to plant the word in your heart, to open your hearts as you did today, as you read those verses, let Jesus be at work in you so you continue to be renewed and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Because that is evidence people cannot deny. If Alan comes back up. So what were the lessons for us today? Jesus was tried, Paul was tried, the disciples were tried. Those who represent Christ will be put on trial by the world, by power, by institutions, and sometimes even by the church. Under the surface, a much larger plan is at work. And so when you feel pressed in the corner, remember that things are not as they appear. The Holy Spirit is at work in things unseen, that will reveal themselves later. Your life is the strongest evidence to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the accuser will try to convict you and render you useless and null and void. But Galatians 5.1 says, it is for freedom that you have been set free. Do not allow yourself to be put back in the yoke of bondage. Let's pray together. Father God, most holy one, most high God, come and continue to sanctify our lives. Come and continue to renew and transform that we would be like Jesus and that our lives would tell those around us that you are real, that your love is real 
and that Jesus is the risen and living Son of God. We pray in his name. Amen.